Hello, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. Before we get into this very special episode of the Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say another huge thank you to everyone who's been donating to us, not just over our Christmas and New Year's donation drive, but throughout the year. I know I say this a lot, but without you, we wouldn't be here. Um, Spiked is funded by our readers, increasingly so. And if it wasn't for your generous support, we wouldn't be able to write the articles that we do, hold the line on all the issues that matter and plan for bigger and better things into 2023. So once again, a huge thank you to everyone who's already given. If you haven't given yet, but you do support our work and you have a bit of money to spare, please do consider making a donation. Today, you can do so at spiked-online.com forward slash donate. And there is still a special offer on. So to those who donate £30 or more as a one-off donation over the festive period, you will get one year's membership to Spike supporters. That's our exclusive donor community, which comes with all kinds of brilliant exclusive perks. You can access Spike's comment section. Also, you get access to exclusive events like the one you'll be listening to or listening back to today. So once again, that's spike-online.com forward slash donate. I hope you all had a brilliant Christmas and are looking forward to a great new year. Now, without further ado, here's Brendan's show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very special live recording of my podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show, with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my very special guest, Toby Young. Toby, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Brendan. So, Toby, I want to talk to you about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is an issue that is very close to Spike's heart. It's probably our most important theme. It has been for around 20 years now. I know it's close to your heart as well. Everyone knows that through the work you've been doing with the Free Speech Union over the past couple of years and the campaigns that you have taken up to defend both famous people's and ordinary people's right to express themselves. And I feel there's a lot for us to talk about in relation to 2022 acts of censorship we've seen, but also acts that we've seen where people have stood up for the right to express themselves freely. Before we kick off, I wanted to get your general sense of what this year has been like on the free speech front. Do you feel optimistic about this liberty at the end of 2022, or are you pessimistic? I think I'm um, uh, very mildly optimistic. Um, I mean, I think uh, 2020 was a particularly bad year for free speech because of a combination of the Black Lives Matter movement and the pandemic. Um, And um, at the Free Speech Union, we spent a lot of our time defending people who challenged BLM orthodoxy or who challenged COVID orthodoxy. And that sort of persisted in 2021, began to, I mean, the clouds began to part a little in 2022. Um, And um, other, other sort of things which I think probably got a little bit better. So the entertainment industry, particularly the Hollywood entertainment industry, I think got a little less woke. Uh, Woke films like Lightyear and Bros did quite badly at the box office. The highest performing film of this year is Top Gun Maverick, a great source of hope. Um, And uh, there was a fight back against the kind of trans Taliban, um, you know, with the announcement that the Tavistock would be closing. And of course, you know, gender critical feminists um, are still getting cancelled left and right. We had the the cancellation of the screening of adult human female in Edinburgh a few days ago. Uh, But generally, generally, I think the TRAs seem to be on the back foot and the GC feminists on the front foot. um, one, one, one kind of uh, one development which 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 hasn't been good 
is, you know, we're beginning to see the outline of um, a Chinese-style social credit system emerge in the West. We don't yet have kind of central bank digital currencies, but um, PayPal and other payment processors are beginning to behave in quite a censorious way and censor people for saying perfectly lawful things that they disapprove of. And the Free Speech Union fell victim to that. When PayPal closed our account, they eventually reopened it again, but plenty of people's accounts have been closed and not reopened. And that's something we're going to have to do our best to fight. Um, The online safety bill, when it eventually um, came back to Parliament, uh, wasn't as bad, I don't think, as it was in some of its earlier iterations. The legal but harmful clause has gone. We can speak more about that. I mean, we're certainly not out of the woods, but um, I think it's marginally better than it was. And the higher education freedom of speech bill, um, which hasn't yet passed and has already been neutered in the House of Lords. um, Nonetheless, I think that will make an impact. And I'm glad that um, that didn't get lost when Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss kind of were defenestrated. It still seems to be um, uh, on track to become um, law in uh, early next year. So I think on balance, um, I think it hasn't been too bad. And I expect things to get a little better in 2023. I guess the the really big um, uh, uh, source of optimism is Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. Twitter has been, I mean, not just because, you know, Twitter itself um, hasn't tolerated much in the way of dissent from various orthodoxies, but because Twitter is kind of an important engine in kind of cancel culture and has been used as both a kind of way of uh, disseminating kind of um, uh, woke propaganda, but also uh, enforcing um, that kind of ideological conformity with kind of progressive dogma. So now that Elon Musk has taken over, even though he's now talking about stepping down as CEO, um, that seems to generally, I think Twitter will be kind of, you know, um, uh, a source source for good rather than evil in 2023. Yeah, that's a very useful summary of the year. I, I think I share your mild optimism. I think I think some good things have happened this year. Uh, but as you know, and, and you've written about extensively as well, some really dreadful things happened as well. You know, this is the year in which the barbarians finally caught up with Salman Rushdie, which we should definitely talk about. This is the year in which women were still being censored for expressing skepticism about the trans ideology, although you're absolutely right. It does feel like the pushback against that is finally uh, uh, having some positive impacts. But one thing that struck me about 2022, just to talk about the negatives for a while, um, we have seen all the different variations of censorship. So we've seen mob censorship, the way in which the Lady of Heaven was shut down at the behest of an Islamist mob who thought that the movie would be offensive to Muhammad or offensive to their religious sensibilities, uh, and of course, Salman Rushdie. So we've seen examples of mobs being marshaled to shut down ideas that they don't like or which they that, that, which wounds their fragile souls. We've seen self-censorship, numerous people just not saying what they want to say because they know that the consequences will be too severe. I think a very good example of that is Macy Gray, the the wonderful Macy Gray, who was really forced to backtrack on her perfectly sensible comments about transgenderism because so many people gave her flack online. And she will never say that again. She will never express those ideas again because she now knows that the, the price one pays is quite high very often. And we've seen state censorship. We've seen it with the online safety bill, which, as you say, seems to have improved, but is still moving forward in a, in a worrying way. And also, the, I think one of the striking things about the Twitter files is the extent of the deep state's involvement in deciding what should be on Twitter and what shouldn't be. And we now know that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security were intimately involved in 
putting pressure on Twitter to to uh, suppress certain voices, suppress certain ideas. So we've seen all the different kinds of censorship. And I want to talk to you about a few of those now. The first thing I want to talk to you about is state censorship and and the government's desire, ongoing desire to, to clamp down on ideas it doesn't like. So let's talk about the online safety bill and and the legal but harmful clause, because as you say, that's been removed, which is a positive step. But legal but harmful, what's interesting about that phrase that it, it sums up so much of censorship in the modern era, doesn't it? This notion that you might have the right legally, narrowly, as defined by law to say a certain thing, but you shouldn't because it will wound people, it will hurt their feelings, it will make them feel bad. The problem with legal but harmful is that it applies to so many examples of censorship in in the 21st century, doesn't it? It does, yes. And um, it wasn't just, that concept wasn't just embodied it, the idea that um, that 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 words, that certain ideas, certain sentiments could themselves cause a tangible form of harm, wasn't just embodied in the concept of legal but harmful, but also in um, a new um, harmful communications offence, which was originally part of the online safety bill, whereby if you were if you if you were found guilty by a court of um, intentionally uh, causing someone serious psychological distress, then you could be imprisoned for up to two years. Um, And that seemed to just completely underline the kind of um, safety culture uh, within our universities and elsewhere, which has, as you say, been invoked so often to shut down free speech. Um, and that's gone. So that's another, that's another, that's something to welcome. The uh, Harmful Communications Act sorry, the harmful communications offence has has been removed from the online safety bill. But uh, on the negative side, it was going to replace um, the Malicious Communications Act and Section 127 of the uh, Communications Act. Um, Section 127 um, uh, makes being grossly offensive a criminal offence. That was the um, uh, offence that uh, Count Dankula was prosecuted for. Um, And now that's staying. That was going to be repealed in England and Wales and replaced by this kind of, in some ways, just as bad um, uh, new law, uh, new communications law. But um, even though the new communications law has been shelved, um, the downside is that Section 127 and the Malicious Communications Act are going to remain on the statute books in England and Wales. So it was sort of half a dozen of one and six of the other. Um, I think the I think the, the the main way I think in which the online safety bill is going to um, empower state censors is that um, uh, even though um, in the previous iteration, um, uh, the Secretary of State at DCMS was going to um, set out in supplementary legislation a list of content that, in their view, was legal but harmful to adults. And on the indicative list that Nadine Dorries had published, it included um, uh, uh, health-related misinformation and disinformation. And the words misinformation and disinformation haven't reappeared in another guise in the latest iteration of the bill, which is good. But as the um, uh, uh, European official made clear, the EU official made clear to Elon Musk in a clip which went viral, um, if if Twitter is going to avoid falling foul of the um, EU Digital Services Act, um, it's going to have to 
uh, have a policy, a content moderation policy of removing misinformation and disinformation. Um, and it look, I imagine that most, and that's true, of course, of other social media companies like Facebook and YouTube and the rest of it. Uh, and I imagine that um, they'll just embrace a standard um, as part of their terms of service, a commitment to removing misinformation and disinformation, not just in the EU, but in the UK as well. And one, one, one problem with that is that the online safety bill uh, tasks Ofcom with with making sure that the big social media companies enforce consistently their terms of service. So if they if they if they pledged to remove misinformation and disinformation, because they'll have to in order to not fall foul of the Digital Services Act, um, uh, Ofcom will say, "Well, look, you haven't removed this, you haven't removed that. We're going to fine you up to ten percent of your annual global turnover unless you do." And that's sort of like you can imagine lots of activists um, petitioning Ofcom um, to remove content that they find disagreeable on the grounds that it's misinformation or disinformation. And we know that um, the big social media platforms are already susceptible um, to uh, being lent on in that way. Matt, Matt, Matt Hancock, in his pandemic memoir, revealed that he had made use of the counter disinformation unit within DCMS to um, get, get that unit to contact social media companies and ask them to remove anyone expressing skepticism or dissent about you know, the lockdown policy, the efficacy and safety of the vaccines, and so forth. So I don't doubt that um, uh, once the online safety bill is in place and assuming the big social media companies do pledge to remove misinformation and disinformation in their terms of service, units like the counter disinformation unit, and there's also a, a cross Whitehall anti-disinformation unit, um, will lean on Ofcom to get to get Ofcom to threaten social media companies with various fines if they don't remove content that the government of the day finds disagreeable. So it, it's it's not direct, it's indirect, but nonetheless, the online safety bill in combination with the Digital Services Act um, and these various official disinformation units, which were originally created to you know combat terrorism and um, you know um, uh, foreign states trying to uh, destabilize Britain through the dissemination of mis misinformation and disinformation. I've, I've no doubt that that will all be used um, as a way to suppress dissent um, uh, in a very heavy-handed way once the online safety bill becomes law. So that, that's the kind of big challenge I think we'll face in 2023. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important point. And it, it brings me on to something that I wanted to ask you about, which is the the form that state censorship very often takes these days. I mean, it is quite rare in the 21st century to see a government desperately bringing in new legislation to prevent people from being able to express a certain political idea or religious idea. I mean, that kind of old world censorship is still fairly rare in, in the 21st century. But what has been happening, and, and that's this has become very clear in 2022, is the outsourcing of state censorship to private bodies and private companies. And that's clear from as you mentioned, the the notion that the, uh, Twitter must abide by EU directives or else it will be severely punished. We've also seen it more broadly with the COVID misinformation idea. And, and one of the things that the Twitter files have made clear is that you didn't really need the American government or even the British government to ban Jay Bhattacharya, for example, the uh, Stanford professor who was one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration and was a very convincing and 
interesting critic of lockdown, you didn't really need governments to silence him and put the jackboot on his neck as might have happened in the past. Because what they did is they essentially lent on Twitter, they lent on social media. And as a consequence of that, we now know from the Twitter files that have been released by Elon Musk and various journalists, he was added to a trends blacklist, which is a suitably McCarthyite idea, and his ideas were suppressed in that way. So isn't one of the problems we face today that the state is outsourcing its censorship to private bodies? And I wanted to ask you how we go around fixing that, because when private corporations act out of turn or do things that are that the general pop population considers to be problematic, we would normally put pressure on the government to rein them in, maybe pass a law to control their behavior. We can't really do that in this situation because we'd be calling on the censorious uh, government that wants to use private companies in this problematic way to rein them in when they do what the government wants them to do. So how much of a problem has this become and what is the way out of this? Yeah, I think it has become a real problem. I mean, I, I, I suspected there was a degree of collusion between um, agencies like the FBI and senior executives at Twitter to uh, shadow ban people like Jay Bhattacharya. But um, I was still shocked to uh, read about the extent of that collusion and in particular the willingness of um, various senior executives at Twitter to do the bidding of agencies like the FBI um, to work hugger mugger with the Biden campaign during, you know, an important electoral contest, suppress um, information that might have damaged his electoral prospects and so forth. Um, and and I suspect that something similar also has been going on over the past two and a half, three years in Britain as well, and that may come to light in due course. Um, and why it's become really problematic, I think, is that um, when you know, these various state agencies, whether it be the DCMS counter disinformation unit or the FBI, um, lean on, you know, journalists, social media companies to remove content. Um, they don't threaten them with, you know, um, uh, being sued or being prosecuted if they don't. I mean, that might happen under the new regulatory regime set up by the online safety bill. But for the most part, they just ask them to do it. And they do it. Um, and, um, and, 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 and it's as though the upper echelons of the press, the kind of elite media now, um, don't really see that that's a problem. They don't, they, don't, they don't worry about being seen to do the bidding of these various state agencies or political actors. They think that's fine, provided they broadly agree with what it is they're being asked to do. And that's a really surprising development. I mean, you know, um, uh, you can imagine uh, it's almost as if, you know, and that, that's presumably one of the reasons Elon Musk wanted to release the Twitter files on Twitter rather than give them to, um, you know, a journalist at the Washington Post or the New York Times, because he, he must have known, I mean, not only did he want to promote his own platform and promote the idea of it as a kind of news-breaking medium, but also um, he must have known that the story wouldn't be uh, given any, given given due prominence by the mainstream legacy press. And indeed, they did largely ignore it, including our own BBC. Um, it's almost as though, you know, um, Deep Throat back in the early 70s had to reach out to a CB radio enthusiast <laughs> rather than to Washington Post reporters to report one of the greatest political scandals of the last century. You know, would Nixon have resigned? Um, uh, and, you know, would, would the Sunday Times um, uh, these days go after a company like um, you know, a, a, a company producing a drug like thalidomide. Um, uh, 
And I sort of generally worry, and I think that, that sort of put this in a broader context, um, you know, until quite recently, until about 10 to 15 years ago, um, most people, I think, uh, shared the belief of um, uh, Justice uh, Louis Brandeis, who was a, pre- a Supreme Court justice. He said it in a famous Supreme Court case, I think in the 1920s, that the best remedy for bad speech uh, wasn't to suppress that speech, but to um, encourage people to rebut it in the public square. More and better speech was the remedy for bad speech. And that became known as the counter-speech doctrine. And it, and it was, you know, um, one of the, um, you know, pillars of free speech across the West, this idea that um, it, if you felt that someone was saying something which was untrue or misleading or was a conspiracy theory in public, the best way to um, uh, ameliorate any harm it might cause uh, was to publicly rebut it, present counter evidence, try and persuade people that it was false. And um, partly as a result of the enormous power of social media, that doctrine has kind of um, largely been abandoned, particularly by liberal elite, surprisingly. Uh, and the view now is that in order to protect the integrity of democracy, um, in order not to allow um, election results to be distorted by bad actors of various kinds, disseminating misinformation and disinformation, spreading conspiracy theories, we can't just allow them to do that willy-nilly um, on big social media platforms. They need to be suppressed. Um, uh, and it's this, this notion that, um, that, that you need that democracy depends upon you suppressing bad speech. The prevalence now of terms like misinformation and disinformation. Um, you know, even the term conspiracy theory didn't really exist um, until the Kennedy assassination. It's now become part of the lexicon. It all suggests this kind of huge shift, this sea change in attitudes towards, you know, um, uh, dealing with things you find disagreeable or things you might regard as false or misleading. And it's a sort of loss of confidence, but it's also, I think, partly just a kind of, it's it's the, um, you know, the establishment's reaction to various election results, which didn't go the way they wanted them to go. So the explanation uh, in their minds for why Trump won the 2016 presidential election, why Brexit triumphed in the EU referendum, is not because there was a fundamental clash of values that ordinary people um, on being presented with the arguments decided that, that, that you know, that, that for perfectly respectable democratic reasons, they would prefer to vote for Trump than Hillary Clinton, prefer Brexit to remain. No, it must be because they were fed misinformation. They were misled in some way, because had they been acquainted with all the facts, the kind of elite view is, then they would have shared, they would have gone exactly the same way as us. So it's partly a kind of, you know, elite panic. It's a response to election results that haven't gone their way, the rise of populism, uh, and they are panicking and and their way to address, you know, uh, to try try and restore their authority and to try and um, uh, win more elections in future. Future is to try and control the flow of information. And that, I think, was obviously what was behind all the information that's come out in the Twitter files over the past few weeks, that thinking. I'm now at the, in a situation where when I hear the words disinformation or misinformation, I just roll my eyes. I just assume, I mean, undoubtedly these things exist at some level, but I just uh, assume that something is being silenced or sidelined 
because someone in authority doesn't like it and they rechristen it misinformation to make the censorship of it sound more justifiable. And I wanted to ask you about one of the more sinister examples of that that occurred this year, which you were um, caught up in, which was PayPal's um, restrictions placed on the Free Speech Union's account, also on the account of Us For Them, which talks about the harmful impacts of um, lockdown on young people. Uh, We also saw the publication, apparently accidental publication of a PayPal idea that its users could be fined $2,500 if they said something that it considered to be misinforming or dangerous or problematic, which was a completely undemocratic, tyrannical proposal where people would be fined for expressing themselves outside of the realm of democracy, outside of the realm of the state, a a really chilling insight into how tyrannical uh, social media companies have become. And of course, earlier this year, we saw GoFundMe restricting the account of the Canadian truckers, the brilliant Canadian truckers who protested against quite ridiculous lockdown policies that were having a very detrimental impact on their ability to, to carry out their work and to earn their living. So, how how problematic do you think it's going to become at the level of actual funding, the ability of people to raise money in order to express their ideas, in order to create a campaign group, in order to create a movement? If we're cut off at that level, then it really becomes difficult, doesn't it, to organize freely and speak freely in the modern era? Yes. And, um, and I think it, it is it is a particularly sinister um, form of cancel culture. And um, it, it did, it did, it, you know, it predates 2020, 2022, mm-hmm. but it did seem to kind of uh, be used much more frequently in 2022. As you say, uh, there was um, Trudeau's attempt to crush the um, Freedom Convoy um, by withdrawing banking facilities to the protesters and so forth. Um, and we saw it with um, PayPal's um, deplatforming of various groups. Um, and it does it does seem um comparable to uh the social credit system that has emerged in china over the past decade or so uh, in which if people um say things that the communist authorities disapprove of um they lose their ability to travel um to go on foreign holidays um uh, uh, to enter certain spaces um and it does seem like a very sinister form of control i don't think it's um you know, coordinated to the same extent as it is in China. Um, but um, there does seem to be a kind of form of groupthink amongst um, uh, leaders within the kind of financial services and payment processing sector um, that it's part of their responsibility now um, to protect people from conspiracy theorists, from peddlers of misinformation. And they see it, you know, they they see it as, 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 a, as a form of being virtuous. You know, um, uh, Dan Shulman, who's the CEO of PayPal, um, gave a speech at Davos this year, a keynote speech, uh, in which he said that in order to be um, a trusted global brand like PayPal, it wasn't enough to deliver a fantastic product or an excellent service. You needed to go beyond that and promote social justice. You needed to you needed to be engaging in this wholesome behavior, trying to improve the world, uh, not just engaged in kind of maximizing shareholder value. Um, and, and, and that's really the rationale, the thinking behind PayPal's deplatforming of numerous 
um, uh, uh, organizations, um, which haven't been doing anything unlawful, but which have been engaging in political campaigns that the head of PayPal, their you know, um, content moderators regard as in some way toxic and harmful. And not just, as you say, us for them and um, the Free Speech Union and the Daily Skeptic, this blog I've been running for two and a half years, but in America, um, so Consortium News, um, uh, uh, some, something called Mint Publishing, both of which were um, quite hard left sites, which took a kind of stop the war coalition view of the war in Ukraine. Both of them were deplatformed by PayPal, um, a, a gender critical biologist called um, Colin Wright. He lost his account. Um, and there seems to be a kind of, um, and they, they've kind of, um, uh, uh, they're now being advised by the Anti-Defamation League, which is, you know, is not only in the business of combating anti-Semitism, but various other forms of hate speech, um, including criticism of, you know, trans rights activists and their agenda. That's hate speech now, of course, as well. Um, and it, 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 is, it is a kind of really sinister development. And one of the things the Free Speech Union has been trying to do um, is persuade the current government to um, amend the Financial Services and Markets Bill um, to make it illegal for payment processing companies to withdraw or withhold service from customers for purely political reasons. We're arguing it's a form of discrimination, just like withholding service or withdrawing service from someone based on the color of their skin. Their political views really should be no business of the um, uh, of the payment processing companies, um, uh, provided they're not breaking the law, provided they're not engaging in fraud, um, then wh why should their politics matter to you know these Californian-based companies? And it seems particularly egregious when it's uh, a company like PayPal based in Silicon Valley directly intervening in kind of public debates in the UK because yeah. it disapproves of one particular side. Where's the accountability? How do we rein them in, you know, other than through parliament? Um, so um, hopefully we'll make some progress with, uh, with that particular campaign. But unless we do, unless we can stop um, financial services companies, payment processing companies, um, uh, demonetizing people in this way, I mean, it'll be the end of free speech as we know it. Yeah, that, the imperial dynamic of Silicon Valley censorship is, I find, incredibly chilling. This notion that because a few wealthy hipster authoritarians in California decree that a certain idea is unacceptable, then it gets globalized through the social media system and suddenly you could potentially be punished even if you live in London or Paris or Melbourne for saying something that they don't like. And and I think we saw similar with... Um, the way in which social media outlets adopted the Anthony Fauci view of COVID and what it was acceptable to say and what it wasn't acceptable to say. And we saw people around the world being banished from the digital town square because they said something that he would have considered to be misinformation or, or he would have considered to be problematic. Um, I want to ask you about mob censorship and the pressure that is put on people to recant their ideas and to conform to what is considered to be the right way of thinking about the world. We've seen some examples of that this year. I thought the censorship of the Lady of Heaven by certain cinema chains was just extra an extraordinary capitulation to the mob. And of course, every time one capitulates to the mob, you embolden it, you strengthen it, you give it more power and, and you give it a greater desire to claim more and more scalps and to, to censor more and more things. And then, of course, the extreme example this year, which we it, we have to talk about, was the attack on Salman Rushdie, 
they finally got to him a genuinely horrific attack on someone simply for having written a, a novel. I think Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, in her brilliant wreath lecture on freedom of speech and cancel culture, described it very well. You know, imagine someone stabbing you in the neck and the arm simply because you wrote a book they didn't like, which really captures what is at stake in this discussion. But isn't one of the problems with this mob censorship is that there's a relationship between that and far more mainstream ideas about words that wound and the idea that we all have the freedom to be insulated from criticism or offense. The more that we go down that route of saying that speech is a dangerous thing that needs to be controlled, won't we end up empowering those people who might want to visit actual physical harm on people who have offended them? Yes, it's one of the paradoxes of um, woke orthodox thinking in this area is that um, certain words, certain opinions um, cause a species of harm, um, which is comparable to physical violence. Um, so, you know, trans rights activists believe that if you say you don't think trans women should be able to compete against uh, women in sports, biological women in, in sports like wrestling and weightlifting and rugby, um, that you're denying the existence, you're, you're somehow erasing the identity of trans people. Um, and that is causing them colossal, catastrophic psychological harm. Um, uh, but at, at the same time as believing this and seemingly wanting to protect vulnerable people from being psychologically harmed in this way, they are perfectly happy with physically attacking people to stop them disseminating words and opinions which can cause this psychological harm so it's 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 a sort of like you know um words have become violence but violence that's just freedom of expression um uh, and i think one of the alarming things about the attack on salman rushdie i mean at the time that the fatwa was issued um the 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 strength of feeling against the fatwa, the number of people coming to Rushdie's defense wasn't nearly as great as it could have been. And, you know, people like Christopher Hitchens often made that point. Um, why aren't we being more robust, more muscular in defense of freedom of expression? Why are we giving any truck? Why are we extending any understanding um, to uh, the totalitarian theocratic regime that has sentenced one of our finest writers to death? Um, but you felt that same reluctance to really stand up robustly for freedom of expression with the attack on Salman Rushdie. Um, you know, the, the voices condemning it were fairly muted. Um, it wasn't nearly as universal as I would have liked. And there weren't many events to kind of um, uh, express solidarity with Salman Rushdie. I went to one in in, in the East End of London, and um, there were very, very few people there. Um, uh, and that was really disappointing. Um, uh, and I think in, in many ways, you know, I mean, you would, may, maybe it's, um, understandable that when um, uh, a fatwa is issued against a writer, because people don't take it particularly seriously, um, that maybe, and because they don't want to come off as kind of Islamophobic or not being kind of cosmopolitan enough, uh, or, or, or because, they, because, they're, because they're deep down moral relativists, they, they might be reluctant for a variety of reasons to condemn the fatwa. But you'd expect them to really when, it, when it's actually action, when someone actually does try to kill Salman Rushdie, you'd expect there to be an absolute outpouring of horror and disapproval. And there really wasn't, which was disappointing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and we saw a similar thing after the massacre at Charlie Hebdo in 2015, where there was a reluctance to give, a, th- th- there was an immediate supportive response and everyone was saying, je suis Charlie, but it didn't last very long. And we saw literary figures and others kind of backtracking and 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 trying to distance themselves from a magazine that they said was Islamophobic or racist or whatever else they were saying. I thought the most extreme example of that was when the Islamic Human Rights Commission, a kind of think tank, gave Charlie Hebdo its Islamophobe of the Year award just a few weeks after the massacre. And the fact that we don't talk about those kinds of things very much, that just such an obscenity as branding these people Islamophobes just after 10 of them had been slaughtered in their own offices. I think that's an indictment of the mainstream media and the mainstream uh, culture as much as it is of the extremists who would carry out attacks like that. Um, Just to move on to what I would consider to be another species of extremism, although it hasn't so far expressed itself as violently as um, radical Islam has, Uh, You mentioned earlier the trans-Taliban, and I do think that's a fitting phrase to describe uh, uh, sections of this movement that are absolutely hell-bent on silencing people, especially women. They have a particular problem with outspoken women, and they want to shut them down if they ask any questions about the trans idea or if they uh, blaspheme against the, the, the religious mantra that trans women are women, which is obviously... A ridiculous claim. Trans women are men. Anyone who understands biology and reality will recognize that. Uh, but it, on on that front, this is where there has been some positive developments, uh, isn't there? Because we've got J.K. Rowling, who I think has behaved heroically over the past few years. We have people like Helen Joyce, who uh, spoke at Cambridge, and I know the Free Speech Union um, stood by Helen Joyce when she did that and when she was denounced by one of the officials at Cambridge University. And there have been various other instances of uh, women and men speaking up and expressing their biological reality-based views on this issue. And that's a good example, isn't it, where what we need to counter censorship is very often just a bit more courage and a bit more bravery and the willingness of people to say things that they're not meant to say. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, I think uh, I think the setbacks that um, trans rights activists and their allies have experienced in the past 12 months um, both testify to um, what a difference being courageous can make, just standing up to the bullies um, and not allowing yourself to be silenced by them um, in spite of the negative consequences. Um, uh, that it, it testifies to that, but it also, I think, reflects um, how ineffective the general tactics of um, woke activists are um, over the long term. So one of the reasons, I think, that the trans rights activists and their allies are losing the argument in the public square, um, one of the reasons Tavistock is going to close. One of the reasons the Gender Recognition Act, at least in England and Wales, is not going to make it significantly easier to legally identify as a member of the opposite sex, um, unlike in Scotland, um, uh, is, is, is because they haven't been willing to actually engage in discussion and debate. Um, this th- Their general tactic has been, well, if you don't agree with every jot and tittle 
of our particular ideology, then you are a transphobe, a bigot, and I'm not going to share a platform with you. I'll be contaminated by association if I share a platform with you. And that that sort of that that's been re- that was reasonably effective, perhaps in the short term, at silencing critics, at bullying people into going along with it, and with the help of Stonewall, persuading lots of organisations, particularly in the public sector, to embrace ideology. But in the long term, they haven't really made many converts in the public square. It's not like, you know, the general public have been persuaded. I mean, it was interesting when the with the in the most recent social attitude survey, um, the public had generally become more liberal across a range of different issues, but not on, if you think of the liberal position being the TRA position, which of course it isn't, but on that issue in particular, um, uh, the the public attitudes had gone backwards from a TRA perspective. Um, Fewer people now think trans women are women than they did 10 years ago. Um, And that I think uh, reflects the fact that if you're completely unwilling to engage in discussion and debate in the public square, if you rely entirely on kind of heavy-handed bully boy tactics, you're not going to win in the long term. Um, uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, in t- I mean, I think that there does need to be um, uh, a settlement between GC feminists and TRAs. I mean, there are gen- there is there are in various areas genuine conflicts between trans rights and sex-based women's rights. Um, and um, of course, the GC feminists aren't just going to have it their way, you know, um, in perpetuity. Um, so there needs to be some kind of consensus, some kind of settlement. So there needs to be a proper public debate. Um, uh, and hopefully in 2023, the TRAs will become less belligerent, a little bit more uh, intellectually tolerant and engage in some genuinely uh, constructive um, public discussion. I mean, I- I'm not wildly optimistic, but you'd think that given how unsuccessful their tactics to date have been, they need to do that if they're going to, you know, because as with so many um, woke activists, they actually harm the cause they're claiming to uh, promote. Um, you know, it, it, it's uh, it hasn't helped um, uh, beleaguered trans and non-binary people, uh, their cause hasn't really been advanced by the incredibly aggressive, belligerent attitude of um, of TRAs. And so, you know, they're, they're, if they're genuinely, if they're genuine about wanting to actually make life better uh, for people who are undoubtedly, you know, having a tough time, um, then they need to be a little bit more, um, they, they need to be a little bit more constructive and um, a little bit less aggressive. Uh, Toby, I'm going to ask you some questions from the audience in a moment, but just one more from me before we do that. Um, Is 2022 the year in which we finally realise that we can't trust the Tories with freedom of speech? I I expect you know a lot more Tories than I do, um, which is fine. That's all good. Uh, but you know, you've we've had the online safety bill. We've also had the higher education bill, which has been watered down to a certain extent so that it's not going to defend freedom of speech on universities in the way that some people might have hoped that it would. And there's the general unwillingness of leading Tory figures to fight back against wokeness, to push back against the encroachment of some of these regressive censorious ideas into the education system, into universities, and into public life more broadly. I, I never thought that Rishi Sunak, who's who's a fairly technocratic politician, I think. I never thought that he would be on the front line of the culture war, but even Boris Johnson didn't make a particularly good fist of fighting the culture war and defending freedom against some of the uh, contemporary mobs. So 
have we finally realized that the right is pretty poor on freedom of speech as well as the left, which is a well-known fact? And and who might we turn to politically when we're making the case for this essential liberty? Well, um, I think the the conservatives have certainly been um, a disappointment to me. Um, uh, Boris Johnson, I felt, could have done much more to defend free speech, particularly during the pandemic. Um, and as you say, um, the uh, online safety bill, although it's been improved a little bit, um, will still, I think, be be used as a tool of censorship. And I don't think enough thought's gone into how to prevent it being used in that way. Um, uh, the higher education freedom of speech bill, um, I think, has a lot of good things in it that would only apply to England, unfortunately. Um, but um, uh, one one of the ways in which it was an improvement on the Education Number no. Two Act, nineteen eighty six, which created a legal duty whereby universities were obliged to uphold free speech on campus wherever practicably possible. Um, one of the shortcomings of, of that duty is that there were no accompanying enforcement mechanisms. If you're unhappy at the moment with how 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 a university is doing, how how it's discharging that legal duty you have to try and judicially review the university, which is a very expensive, cumbersome process. Uh, if you lose, you have to pay the other side's costs, which can be enormous. Uh, very few people want to go down that route. Uh, so there really is very little you can do to force universities to discharge that legal duty created by the Act in 1986. It's more often honoured in the breach than the observance. One of the good things about the Higher Education Bill is that it does introduce a couple of enforcement mechanisms. One is the creation of a kind of free speech champion within the office for students who, if you think your speech rights on campus have been breached, whether a student or a member of staff, you can complain to this new free speech champion and he has um, some staff at his disposal to investigate complaints and he can fine universities if the complaint is up, upheld. So all that's, that's good. But there was this other enforcement mechanism, which I think was more important, whereby um, if you felt that your speech rights had been violated by an English university, you'd be able to take that university to the county court, uh, which is much, much easier than trying to judicially review a university. Um, and um, the very threat, that very possibility, I think, would have meant that um, the new, slightly more robust free speech duties included in the bill would have been taken much more seriously by universities. And that 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 taught that new tort enabling students and academics to sue universities in the county court was removed in the House of Lords a week or so ago. Um, and I'm hoping the government will put it back in in its entirety. There's some debate about whether they'll put it back in in a slightly neutered version, whereby you can only go to court if you've exhausted all the other complaints processes. I mean, the Free Speech Union is certainly lobbying the government to try and put it back as originally drafted. But I think if the bill is passed as originally drafted, it will make a bit of a difference. That's pretty much the only thing the Conservatives have done to um, stand up for free speech. I mean, you know, um, I would have expected a Conservative government with an 80-seat majority, admittedly slightly smaller than that now, to have done more about um, non-crime hate incidents, mm -hmm. um, you know, whereby the police um, are investigating people accused of committing hate crimes and when finding that they aren't guilty, instead of just um, uh, drawing a line under the whole affair, they're recording the fact that the people concerned have committed a non-crime hate incident. And in some circumstances, that can show up when a prospective employer uh, carries out an enhanced DBS check. And uh, you might think, well, 
just how prevalent are NCHRs? How often are the police really bothering to do this kind of paperwork when they discover a crime hasn't been committed? Well, the answer is very often indeed. It's much more prevalent than you might suspect. We, we've we worked out that um, in, with a, for a combination of FOIs and so forth, that since 2014, when the College of Policing published its guidance in England and Wales, advising the police to record these non-crimes. Um, we think about 250,000 have been recorded in England and Wales alone, which is an average of about 75 a day. Um, so you, know, you wonder why the police don't come to your house if you're burgled or if you report you know, um, your car's been broken into. It's because they're too busy, you know, investigating people misgendering one another on Twitter. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, if, if you want the police to come to your house, Brent, if you're burgled and you want the police to come to your house, get a can of spray paint and, and spray paint on the wall, trans women aren't women. And when you call <laughs> the police, report that, and there'll be a team of 10 officers around there in about 30 seconds. <laughs> that's a uh, very good advice. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, 250,000. I mean, that is extraordinary for non-crime hate incidents. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned them because that is a very good example of the state really stepping beyond its own bounds and interfering in areas of life it has no right whatsoever to interfere in. And I think that's something that needs to be borne in mind and something that we need to challenge and which you guys have been challenging. Um, I should say, Brendan, just in fairness to the present government, um, Chris Philp, who is the new policing minister, uh, apparently did say a couple of weeks ago at a meeting um, uh I think of, of chief constables in England and Wales that they shouldn't be um, investigating yeah. and recording non-crime mm-hmm. hate, hate incidents anymore. And I think uh, um, uh, 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 Suella Braverman is going to be doing something in the new year to make it more difficult too. So perhaps they will event, you know, finally do something about that. And I should also say that poor though the Conservatives have been about standing up for free speech, I do think that... Um, uh, a Keir Starmer-led Labour government, particularly if it's in coalition with the Greens, the Lib Dems and the SNP, will be significantly worse. Uh, So even though we think things are pretty bad now, I think they could get a lot worse by an order of magnitude uh, in those circumstances. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, Okay, Toby, so this is a podcast, a live podcast that's been recorded in front of Spike supporters and One of the perks that Spiked supporters enjoy is that they can ask us questions and they can ask you questions. So I'm going to fire some of those questions at you now, and we're going to kind of keep it as a quick fire round. So if you can keep your answers fairly brief, we'll get through as many of the questions as we can. The first one, I really want to know what you think about this. Um, I've written about this today on the day that we're recording this podcast What is your opinion on Jeremy Clarkson's apology? So Jeremy Clarkson wrote a piece in The Sun uh, a few days ago, a few days before we were recording this, in which he said some pretty colourful, pretty offensive things about Meghan Markle being paraded through the streets and pelted with excrement. He's now backtracked to a certain extent in in light of a massive, massive Twitter storm. What's your view? My view is that... um, uh He's inadvertently given ammunition to the enemies of free speech. And I, I'm sorry he's done that. Um, yeah. So, you know, there are lots of people who think that um, if men use kind of laddish language, if they engage in banter 
in public, that that will endanger the safety of women and girls, that that'll be contributing to the epidemic of violence against women and girls. And under that pretext, um, you know, there's a there's a big push to um, outlaw misogyny, um, uh, not just wolf whistling, but all kinds of misogyny. And I think there's a there's a, um, a real danger that 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 law could be used um, to shut down gender critical feminists on the grounds that um, misogyny laws should protect trans women as well as women. Um, so I, I and also, of course, he's given ammunition to Meghan yeah. um, and it's going to make it, I think, slightly easier for her to claim in future that the British tabloids are kind of riddled with racists and their hatred of her is not because she's uh, an obnoxious, fortune-seeking American adventurous who's captured this innocent booby, um, <laughs> but it's all because she's a woman of colour and because we're all racists, we, we, we don't want our royal family contaminated in that way. So I rather regret that he's provided the enemies of free speech and Meghan Markle in particular with um, this ammunition. A question from Alan. Alan, this is a very good question and we it shouldn't have been kept to the brief period, but that's what I've done. Alan says, it's starting to look like a lot of the COVID uh, lockdown sceptics were right in what they said. Do you think this will help to shift public opinion about the uh, about suppressing contrary views and why we shouldn't do that? Well, I hope it will. Um, uh, I think that, um, you know, I hoped that when um, uh, people began to realise that the um, the view that COVID had started in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, uh, the, the, the lab leak theory, I thought that when people, which was originally, of course, described as a conspiracy theory, I thought that when it emerged that that was probably true, and that there was certainly robust evidence suggesting that that was how COVID-19 originated, that people would then begin to think twice, you know, that the people who'd been um, uh, actively suppressing that and describing it as disinformation would be slightly embarrassed. But regrettably, they didn't seem to miss a step. Um, and so even, you know, the, you'd hope that the Twitter files might have the same impact, that people would begin to reevaluate uh, the suppression of misinformation and disinformation because they can so often get it wrong. And so much of it is in a sort of gray area, which is not clear what's straight, straightforwardly false or true. Um, but but again, I fear that they probably won't miss a step. And even though um, the lockdown sceptics, um, I think, are emerging as um, probably right. Um, uh, I don't think, um, you know, in the climate change debate, for instance, that's going to make people any more tolerant um, of dissent. They're still going to describe any challenge to the kind of net zero agenda as, you know, climate misinformation. Indeed, it, you know, it frequently is described as such. Um, and, you know, they seem to have, they seem to have, seem to be very hard to embarrass. Um, however often they get it wrong and however often they're made to look foolish, nonetheless, they just press on. Yeah. One thing I've noticed this year is the way in which, in relation to climate change, they no longer just talk about science denialism, but also policy denialism. And that's anyone who denies that a certain policy is a good idea. That in itself is now seen as a as problematic idea that should possibly be censored, even calling into question actual politics, actual policies, which is a chilling development in the climate change issue. Um, I have a question here from Simon. We've already touched on this issue, but this is a specific uh, question. Uh, given that the Cambridge Dictionary has added a ridiculous supplemental definition to the word woman and also to the word man, uh, how much of a threat do you think these new trans ideas pose to women's rights and the ability of women to talk about themselves and what they need? Well, I think they do pose um, a huge threat. 
um, uh, and not just to women's rights, but to um, uh, you know they pose a, they pose a threat to other rights as well. I mean the the um, the Free Speech Union um, this Sunday launched a new Writers Advisory Council and created an offer for writers who um, have become disillusioned by the unwillingness of the Society of Authors, the Writers Trade Union, uh, to stand up for gender critical authors um, when they're you know targeted for cancellation, uh, when their publishing contracts are cancelled, when they're you know, no platform um, from speaking events. Um, and we hope to provide more robust protection for writers' freedom of expression at the Free Speech Union and create a kind of safe haven for refugees from the Society of Authors. Um, but yeah, we see we see the erosion of women's rights and their right to speak out and express themselves um, across the board um, as a result of, you know, trans rights activism. I think it is very serious. And um, uh, and I think this the, the supplementary definition of woman introduced by the Cambridge Dictionary is a worrying sign. Um, uh, it's as though dictionaries now, instead of describing how words are used and changing only as usage change mm-hmm. changes, they're now um, defining words as they think they ought to be defined, which is a very different approach. And my friend Nick Dixon, whom I do a podcast with once a week called The Weekly Podcast, he said on GB News, it was as though, you know, in a, in a few years' time, um, dictionaries from the kind of pre-woke era will be kind of treasured sources of kind of truth. And we'll have to meet in kind of dark rooms where someone will produce and kind of pull up, pull, pull, get out of a kind of locked box. You know, the Oxford English Dictionary circa 1986, where it will actually contain some reliable definitions. And ever since then, they'll have gradually become less and less reliable. Yeah, absolutely. I've been reading about William Tyndale recently, the the fifteenth um, century radical who translated the Bible into English, and the way in which people would read their English Bibles in absolute terror in darkened rooms by candlelight in case they were discovered. And I think that kind of uh, feeling is coming back in in relation to certain issues in the twenty first century. Um, this is an interesting question from Guy. Guy says, look, Toby, people like you are pretty well connected in the mainstream media. Are there voices in the mainstream media that you think are going to start breaking ranks and are going to, uh, are going to start saying the kind of things that you say, the kind of things that we say uh, in relation to the importance of freedom? Why isn't the mainstream media making enough of a fuss about cancel culture, about the Twitter files, about some of these very important issues? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question, and I think it's um, I think it's partly because um, uh, being on the right side of these various issues, I mean, the right side, not the side we consider the right side, um, has become a, a kind of high status indicator, a way of advertising your membership of the professional elite. So, you know, if if if, if you if you say that you don't think trans women are women, for instance, um, that's like a low status indicator. That's the sort of thing that Trump and his supporters would say. It's not something that, you know, a member of the Brahmin progressive elite would say. And I think that's an important reason that they're very unwilling to um, defend the rights of persecuted dissenters. It's true of climate change as well. You know, anyone who is a so-called climate change denier, um, even though I don't know anyone who actually denies that climate change has actually happened, it's all about what the causes of it are and how big a role carbon emissions play. Um, but 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 you know, it, it, it's 
winning that argument for people who subscribe to that agenda is often not about kind of putting forward, you know, their best foot in the public square. It's about indicating that anyone who doesn't share it is a kind of knuckle dragging troglodyte, a denier comparable to a Holocaust denier. And it's about kind of just, just trying to pour these smears onto their heads in order to kind of make them seem like unrespectable beyond the pale kind of, um, you know, people dressed in animal skins and face paint storming the Capitol on January the 6th. Absolutely. Um, Okay, Toby, I've got one more question for you. This is, uh, I think this is a good one to end with because this really does bring in the larger question of what we're going to do about all of this. So Terry wants to know, will Elon Musk save free speech for us? And that's a that's a very interesting question because we've mentioned Elon Musk already. You, you've mentioned it as one of the positives of the year, the fact that he's taken over Twitter and is exposing uh, some of the bad things that was were happening at Twitter. Uh, but at the same time, there is a question mark, isn't there, over the idea that this one person could deliver us from a censorious era into a free era. So will Elon Musk save us or is it a bit more complicated than that? It's probably a bit more complicated. I mean, I think his, um, I think uh, Twitter has much improved since he took over, um, and I think the fact that he's released the Twitter files is, um, you know, provides us with really useful evidence of the way in which speech is suppressed by companies like Twitter. Um, uh, but um, uh, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not the kind of ideal spokesman champion of free speech that we'd like i mean he he can behave in a slightly attention seeking provocative way it's as though his style is based on trump's style and i would prefer it if he acted a bit more like ron DeSantis, um you know a bit more grown up a bit more statesmanlike and you know um when it comes to twitter um uh, i think um uh, one difficulty with the way in which he's been, you know, making these decisions um, based on his kind of uh, Twitter polls um, is it still feels like it's sort of one man. I mean, one of the difficulties with Twitter 1.0 is that you have this kind of group of kind of um, uh, wokesters at the top of the corporation, you know, making decisions about what the millions of users all over the world could see. And there didn't seem to be anything democratic about it. And it wasn't rule-based either. You know, it was quite kind of capricious and to do with who called them and what pressure was brought to bear. And they put these rules in place and then they would ignore them or they'd apply them inconsistently to kind of further their own political aims. And, you know, you you would hope that part of what Twitter 2.0 becomes is, a, you know, e- even if it's not more democratic and even if, Elon Musk is still a kind of all-powerful kind of philosopher king, you would hope that it became, becomes a much more rule-based place in which the content moderation policies once in place will be enforced consistently. But my hope is that um, the way in which he'll kind of solve this problem of um, how to m- turn it into a kind of free speech platform without it degenerating into people just kind of calling each other names the whole time um, is that he'll outsource content moderation, make it much easier for people to decide for themselves, you know, what their safety setting should be and how 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 much appetite they have for hearing kind of contentious and disagreeable things. Um, and, and that's the way to solve the problem. And I hope that in due course, you know, he'll appoint... Um, um, a grown-up CNO, CEO who will uh, uh, develop um, uh, some 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 uh, 
properly working outsource content moderation policies and then enforce them consistently. It'll become, you know, the free speech platform, the digital town square we all want it to be. But I think there's much more hope of it becoming that now than there was before we bought it. Toby Young, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.